I want us just to focus on verses 23 to 26. You remember that last time we looked at that passage that uh, Michael's just read to us uh, in its entirety, skipping really verses 23 to 26. In other words, we looked at what was wrong in the church at Corinth. We looked specifically at the problem that Paul was addressing there, but we didn't really look at what the Lord's Supper is all about. And I want us this week to focus really on what uh, this celebration is all about. Um, I'll just read verses 23 to 26 again. I'll read from the ESV. It's incredibly close in wording to the NIV. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I suggested last week, uh, at the very start of this, that for many Christians living in our generation, this celebration, this service, has really become little more than part of what we do as a church. You know, we, we have that service, we have that service, we have that midweek meeting, and twice a month we celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever you choose to call it. And I pointed out that in past generations, certainly if you go back a hundred years in our land, uh, for many it was taken far, far more seriously than that. Um, people would spend Saturday night in preparation for it, reading the scriptures, reminding themselves of what Christ had done, examining their own hearts, examining their life, confessing their sin before the Lord, so that when they came to it on the Sunday, they were spiritually prepared for it. Uh, there, was a, there was a hunger there, a spiritual hunger that they, they needed to be there. They wouldn't miss it. It, w- it would be a, a, a very serious matter that would keep them away from the Lord's Supper. It wouldn't just be a casual thing to miss it. There would have to be a very, very good reason uh, why they wouldn't be there at that service. And my prayer is that for us as a church we can get something of that back because that was right. That's how it should be. This is a very serious and a very important and a very wonderful celebration that we participate in. So what is it all about? I want us to see just three things from these few verses, 23 to 26. Firstly, it's an ordinance. Second, it's a remembrance. And thirdly, it's a proclamation. And if we can look at those three things, I think that would be enough, hopefully, to at least underline for us how important it should be and how we should take it seriously. Verse 23, it is an ordinance. Verse 23 reads, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. In other words, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was never something that the church invented or the church designed or the church brought into being. Uh, It wasn't a good idea that someone had. It's not just a tradition. It comes from Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his Spirit, gave to Paul what he was to say to this church. Paul is very clear on this. He's he's saying, I know that there may be other areas where I'm speaking as far as I know it on my own account as an apostle, although God uh, inspired it by his Spirit, otherwise it wouldn't be in the canon of Scripture. But Paul says, of this, I know the origin of this is in Jesus Christ. He has given me what I'm passing on to you. And he immediately quotes in verses 24-25 what happened when Christ first instituted this service. And he quotes there of the Lord Jesus Christ, do this in remembrance of me. Twice in fact he quotes it, after the bread and after the cup. 
In other words, he goes back to that first service, that first celebration of the Lord's Supper and says when Jesus did that, he was instituting something new for the church. That the church was to do in obedience and remembrance of him. Now friend, before we go any further, can we see how important that makes this service? When we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not coming to do what in tradition we do in this church. Yes, it is part of our tradition, but that's not why we come to do it. We're not coming to do something that the the church has dreamt up and thought a good idea. It is a good idea, but that's not why we do it. We're not even coming to do something that we can find a pattern for in Scripture and find support for in Scripture, although we can find a pattern support for it. We're coming to do what Jesus Christ explicitly, purposefully, directly commanded and commands us to do. It's not an option for Christians to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Can I say that? We said that last time. It is not an option. Any more than it's an option to be baptised. It is something that Jesus Christ commands. It's something that Jesus Christ gave. It is something that we perpetuate through this age because it's required of us. That's what makes this service sacred. It's not part of church tradition. Well, we have so many traditions, don't we, in the, in the church and, and some of them are very good and some of them are not so good and it's right that we re-examine those periodically and say, is that a, a good tradition or not? If it's not, let's get rid of it. Has it still got a relevancy today or is it something that was appropriate for a past generation? And there are all sorts of things that we examine and approve or reject in, in that way. This isn't one of them. This comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself and we do it in remembrance of him. Now I suggest to you that should shed a whole new way on the way we look at it and our participation in it. What is the, the first thought that comes into your head when you notice in the notice sheet or on your calendar or whatever it might be that this week we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? The first thing should be Christ has commanded me to do this. I'm here because Christ has called me here. I'm here at his instigation. I'm here to celebrate what he has instituted. It's not optional. You know, there are some who would say, well, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling in that area in, in my thinking about it or I'm going to be pressed for time on Sunday so if I'm there I'm not going to be thinking well about it. It's better that I don't do it. That isn't the solution. The, the, the solution is I'll sort my thinking out and I'll sort my calendar out so I can do it. One of the hardest things for me every year, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this, is when we take the cubbies away camping, uh, it seems more often than not when we're down there at uh, East Dean, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. They follow the same pattern as us, the, the first Sunday morning, the, the first Sunday evening, the third Sunday morning. And we very often seem to be down there on that third Sunday morning. Why I find it hard is because I'm torn immediately between responsibilities towards the youngsters and celebrating the Lord's death with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I desperately don't want to walk out on a celebration of the Lord's death. He died for me. I'm his child. This is how he's asked me and called me to remember it. And yet at the same time, we've got responsibility towards these youngsters, uh, some of whom aren't Christians, and it wouldn't be appropriate that they're in there taking part in this service. So every year we, we have this compromise where as many as possible are able to stay for it but one or two need to leave with the youngsters to look after them. 
we don't want to walk out on the Lord's Supper do we it is so precious Christ has given us this as much as he's given us baptism my, my desire to do one should be as great as my commitment to do the other because they're both instituted of the Lord the second thing we need to see is this it's remembrance look at verses 24 to 25 and when he had given thanks referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ in that upper room at that first celebration when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me See, in describing what the Lord's Supper is all about, Paul immediately refers back to what happened on that very first celebration where it was instituted. And we're going to do that. But before we do, can I just take you back to the service that preceded that one? The one that they'd gone to that upper room to celebrate the Passover. Because I suggest in understanding that, we get an even better understanding of the Lord's Supper. And to understand that, of course, we need to go back to Exodus And back in Exodus 12 and 13 we have the Lord coming to Moses and telling Moses what he's going to do. How he's going to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. How he's going to bring them out of their bondage and their captivity and their enslavement. How he's going to do for them what they can't do for themselves. They can't deliver themselves. They can't rescue themselves. They're trapped. And God says, I'm going to deliver you. And he tells them how he's going to do it. They're to take a lamb and slaughter it and they're to take the blood of that lamb and paint it up the posts of the door and across the the lintel of the door and they're to hide behind the shed blood of that lamb. And God promises them that provided they obey him and provided they hide behind the blood of the lamb, when he comes in judgment on that land, he will pass over them. He will pass over those who are hiding behind the shed blood of the lamb. And he says, and this is the point in Exodus 12, verse 24 to 27, obey these instructions, he goes on to tell them how he wants it remembered, as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, obey this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians then the people bowed down and worshipped so so that was a remembrance it was a remembrance of how God delivered them how God passed over their sin in judgement how God spared their lives because they sheltered behind the blood of a lamb and that was continued down through the centuries year on year God's people remembered that event by celebrating the Passover right up until a couple of thousand years later when Jesus is there on the scene in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and we have Jesus sends his disciples out to make preparation that they can celebrate it together in that upper room. We get some idea of how seriously the Jews took that celebration from Josephus. Uh, Apparently uh, Cestius required Uh, the high priest to make a census in order to convince Nero a few years later of how important Jerusalem was and how important the Jews were as a nation. So he got him to take a census of the number of sheep that were slaughtered in Jerusalem. 256,500 sheep 
were slaughtered in Jerusalem in that one year to celebrate Passover. Now if you assume that ten people shared a lamb and that's reckoned to be a conservative estimate that means that there are over two and a half million Jews in Jerusalem that day celebrating Passover. Josephus actually puts the number at uh, 2,700,200 and in 65 AD they reckon there are over 3 million there celebrating Passover. That's how important it was to them and what they were remembering was God passing over their situation there physically and delivering them physically out of their bondage into freedom and eventually into the promised land. And there is Jesus and he takes the bread and he takes the cup and in the midst of that remembrance he turns it into something far, far greater. He says, you see this bread? This is my body. You see this cup? This is my blood. He doesn't mean literally that the bread is his body and the cup is his blood and even more, any more than when he says I'm the gate or I'm the uh, the sheep pen or I'm the true vine or I'm the bread of life or any of those things he, he, he's speaking metaphorically but he's saying look in a wonderful sense this bread that we're about to eat represents my body and this cup that we're about to drink represents my blood and he suddenly turns that remembrance of an event thousands of years in the past into our remembrance of something far greater 2,000 years ago to us the sacrifice of our Lord and Saviour on the cross. The remembrance of the delivery from Egypt, from slavery to Egypt, superseded by the remembrance of Christ's work to deliver us from slavery to sin. The remembrance of the delivery from bondage to Pharaoh to a celebration of what Christ did to deliver us from bondage to Satan. The remembrance of sheltering behind the shed blood of a lamb in order that God would pass over them in his judgment to a celebration of the shed blood of the Lamb in order that Christ would, God would pass over our sin in judgment. The remembrance of being brought into freedom out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land into the celebration of the far greater deliverance into freedom spiritually that is ours in Christ Jesus and eventually into the promised land of heaven itself. The remembrance of being made into a people of God into the celebration of being adopted into God's family as children of God. That's the Lord's Supper. It's given that you might better remember what Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. And my friend, I've got to tell you, there is a very real danger for us as Christians that the more years we live and the longer in history that event of us coming to Christ in repentance and faith becomes, there is a temptation, there is a possibility that the wonder of Christ's death for us might diminish. It shouldn't. It mustn't. But there is a very real danger that it might. Instead of that, it should grow more precious, it should grow stronger, it should grow more important to us every year that passes. And the Lord's Supper is intended to cause the latter rather than the former. It should become more precious every time we celebrate it. Now can I just explain what I mean by that before we go any further? What do I mean in saying that we might better remember it? What do I mean by saying we might better appreciate it? Can I say what I'm not saying first of all? 
I definitely don't mean that in celebrating the Lord's Supper in any way we become more in Christ than we were before. In other words, there is no salvational dimension to the Lord's Supper. I I, I firmly reject that on the basis of Scripture. In no sense is our participation in the Lord's Supper part of Christ saving us or adding to Christ's saving of us. We are saved by faith and faith alone. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. That's where we stand. And if there was any sense that by partaking of these elements I was becoming more in Christ than I was before, then there would be a salvational dimension to celebrating it and that is not the case. I do not become more in Christ. Can I say as well that I do not believe that by partaking of it I grow in my understanding of Christ or my knowledge of Christ. That would be to deny the sufficiency of Scripture and to deny the work of the Holy Spirit in interpreting Scripture to me. I don't believe that happens. I believe we gain everything we need to know about the death of Christ for us from God's Word. And God's Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our minds and to our hearts. But I do believe that as I partake of the Lord's Supper I better appreciate and, and I have a better awareness of what Christ has done for me. Let me explain how I believe that works. I was trying to think of an illustration of it and, and the best I could come up with was Thomas. Do you remember Thomas in scripture? There's Thomas, bless him. Jesus has been crucified. He's seen the event. Je- Jesus is there on a cross, crucified, taken down and buried in a tomb. Humanly speaking, he is dead, and he is dead. Three days dead. And then the disciples, to their untold joy, see the risen Saviour. And their hearts are thrilled with joy. Thomas isn't there, so what do they do? They run to Thomas and say, Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord. Christ who died is now risen again. Now, do you think Thomas didn't want to believe that? I certainly wanted to believe it. He's heard all that he needs to hear. He's heard the truth. Christ has risen again. There's nothing can be added to that. That declaration is sufficient. The word has been spoken. Christ is alive. Eyewitness accounts of it just the same as we have in Scripture. We've got nothing more to base it on than that when we come to Christ in faith, have we? The eyewitness accounts that are recorded for us in Scripture that they saw Christ alive. But what does Thomas actually say? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. In other words, we haven't got just one sense, we've got five senses, and they're powerful senses, and they compete with each other, and sometimes we hear one thing, but we see something different, and which, which is going to take us, which is going to capture us, which are we going to believe in? And Thomas says, I, I, I need some supporting evidence to this through my other senses. I need to see the risen Christ, I need to touch the risen Christ, then I'll be able to believe. And wonderfully and graciously, the Lord then appears to Thomas, doesn't he? And do you remember what he says? Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. In other words, Thomas, you've heard the truth, but I'm going to be very gracious to you. I'm going to give you some supporting evidence. Here you are, touch it. Here you are, see it for yourself. Now believe it. 
And he goes on to say, how much more blessed are those who do not see yet believe. In other words, us. But you see the point. The truth didn't become any more real for Thomas having seen it. Jesus has risen. The testimony was given. He had what he needed to hear in order to believe. But his flesh is weak. And God graciously gave him some supporting proofs and supporting structure to that to help him in his faith and in a not dissimilar way I suggest you the Lord's Supper does that for us what happens when we gather around this table to remember the Lord scripture is read the truth is proclaimed and that's all we need we read the scriptures we read that Jesus Christ went to die to pay the death for our sin and the Holy Spirit takes those words and implants the truth of them in our minds and makes the truth of them the reality in our lives But as well as that, we touch these emblems. We finger them, we handle them. The the bread, the cup. Not only that, but we see them. We see the red liquid of the grape juice. We we see the, the frailty and the breaking of the bread. Not only that, but we smell as we lift them, the bread and the wine. And then we taste them. And we taste on our tongue the, the cup and the bread. And we even feel them travel down our throat into our very being. And it's as it were as we do those things that that reinforces to us and makes more real to us what the scripture has declared to us. That Christ's death was a real sacrificial death for us. And I suggest to you, if you come to the Lord's Supper and you partake of the elements in a right way, you can't escape the reality of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. It just speaks it so powerfully into our being. This is what Christ did for me. And see, finally, it's a proclamation. Verse 26 whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes we've already said last time that the Lord's Supper is is an act of unity it's an act of fellowship and it is and when we partake of them it not only speaks to us but we speak it out to each other by our actions it's not just that I am remembering but I'm declaring before all the others there look I remember what Christ has done for me we celebrate together what Christ has done for us That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It should be a great encouragement to each other. That here are my brothers and sisters in Christ joining me in giving thanks to God for what he's done for us. It should be a challenge to each one of us. I'm here with my brothers and sisters, those I'm called to love, those I'm called to live with, those I'm called to encourage and help. And we're together remembering the death of Christ, that greatest sacrifice for me for us these are my brothers and sisters who God loves every bit as much as he loves me lest I ever forget that these are the brothers and sisters that are every bit as precious in his sight as I am in his sight because his blood was shed as much for them as it ever was for me so it should be an encouragement it should be a challenge as we proclaim together that this is what Christ has done for us but it's even more than that isn't it 
because it's a proclamation that joins with the redeemed down through the history of this world. Do you realise that? That as we come together to celebrate it, we're joining with Paul and the church at Corinth and we're joining with brothers and sisters in Malawi and brothers and sisters in Brazil and Asia and every part of this world in every generation. Every generation has done this. Every nation today with their Christians does this. We're coming together as God's people to say this is what Jesus has done for us and for me. And we give him our praise. And by faith we feed on what he has done that it might strengthen us, that it might build us up, that it might encourage us, that it might make us pursue holiness more, that it might take away our desire after sin and evil, that we might image Christ more. And I suggest to you as well that within that proclamation there's a wonderful truth. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And isn't the celebration of the Lord's death a wonderful point of forward as well as remembrance looking backwards? As we do it, as we proclaim by what we're doing, by partaking of these elements, as we proclaim that this is what Christ did for me 2,000 years ago, I look forward to the day I'm going to see Jesus with my own eyes. It's not going to happen anymore then. We'll never celebrate the Lord's Supper again. It will be finished because we won't need it anymore. We won't need some physical reminder of the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for us, that his body was broken for us because we will see it with our own eyes. Isn't that amazing? There will be a day when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who are outside of Christ will be cast into hell and those who are his will be brought into his glorious kingdom. And for an eternity we will gaze upon the Lamb. And we will see there the nail prints in his hands. Never again have to ask how real was his death for me. Never wonder about it. We will see it. And we will see it for an eternity. Never again will we it go out of our mind to worship Christ for who he is and what he's done. It will be there because our minds will be perfect and our thoughts will be perfect. And our focus on Christ will be perfect. And everything we do in glory, there in the back of it, in every way, will be Christ died for me. Christ gave his life to redeem me. Christ went through that agony in order that I, a sinner like me, might be saved. And we cry out with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Is that the cry of your heart as you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper? That until that day we will do this to remember our King, our Lord, our Saviour. And one day it's going to be superseded yet again. It will be superseded by seeing Christ. Oh my friend, do you know this Saviour? Do you know the Saviour who went to that cross and died in agony in order that you might be saved? It's a very serious thing, the Lord's Supper. We don't participate of it lightly. Can I say, I do believe that it's for Christians and Christians only. I don't say that as a, 
trying to ban other people from something that they would enjoy doing. I say it because it's about remembering what Christ has done for me and until I'm a Christian I can't remember what Christ has done for me because he hasn't done anything for me unless I come in repentance and faith. The right answer to that is not to say in that case I better not take it anymore. The right answer to that is to say in that case I need to be saved. Do you realise what Jesus Christ has done in order to make that possible? 2,000 years ago he came down onto this planet he took the form of you or I he took a human form and inside this human weak frame there was 100% man and 100% God and he lived a perfect life now you and I have not lived perfect lives and we wouldn't kid ourselves that we have I'm sure Never in his mind did he for one second think anything that was wrong. Never did he say anything was wrong. Never did he do anything that was wrong. He perfectly fulfilled everything that God the Father wanted of him. He was tested, the scripture says, he was tried in every way that you are. There is no temptation that you have faced that he didn't face as well and yet he did not sin when faced with that temptation not even for a second, whether it was to look at a woman lustfully, whether it was to lie, whether it was to do anything, he didn't fail, even for a millisecond. And having lived that perfect sinless life, he chose to go to the cross. Didn't have to go there, he chose to go there. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, the joy of knowing what that death would achieve, he went and died. And if you think the death of a cross was agony, you're right, but it's nothing to the agony that he endured. For not only did he endure the physical pain and suffering that others experienced as well, he experienced the outpouring of God's wrath on him for the sin of each one who would put their trust and hope in him. He bore in his body the punishment for my sin and for each and every person who will come in repentance and faith to him. And he paid that dead of sin completely so that he was able to cry out in victory it is finished and then scripture says he gave up his own spirit he did that in order that men and women might be saved my friend are you saved what does it require of you it requires of you that you recognise that you need his saving that you recognise that you are not perfect and therefore you are not good enough to get to heaven without him There are none righteous, no, not one, Scripture says. It requires that you throw away every other idea of how you're going to get there. It's not by attending church. It's not by being baptised. It's not by taking communion. It's not by being a good mother or neighbour or giving to charity. It's not by any of those ways or all of those ways put together. It's not through any other leader, for there is salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. It's not by you seeking to earn God's favour or paying him back for it afterwards. The only way is to come and throw yourself on the mercy of a gracious God and plead that he would forgive you not because you deserve it for you never can but simply because Christ died to make it possible. You throw yourself on his mercy you confess that you're a sinner you ask his forgiveness for your sin you determine in your mind that you will turn away from that life of sin and live for his glory and praise dependent entirely upon his strength to do it. And you put your hope in one thing and one thing only, 
that Jesus Christ died to save people who would do that. That Jesus Christ went through all of that in order that you in this day might bow your knees and worship him and have your sins forgiven. And once you've done that, oh, can I plead with you, don't stop remembering his death for you. Especially by celebrating it in the way that God has chosen for us to remember it. In gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ to adore the Lord, to praise him, to worship him and to have the truth of what he's done more firmly in place in us by taking that bread and cup, by feeling it, by smelling it, by looking at it, by tasting it, by feeling it going down into your body and letting the Spirit take the words of God and apply them with effect to your mind and heart that you might fall more richly in love with his Saviour until the glorious day when you see him, your Lord, your Saviour, your King and then for eternity know what it is to have had your sin covered by the blood of the Lamb.